turn to 1 John chapter 2. This is part 3 in a series, Christ our Advocate. Let's look at verse 1 for now, and then we'll, um, later on in the message, we'll visit verse 2. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The first part of this series, uh, we dealt with and looked at the promises and conditions that were placed on Christ in the purpose of him being an advocate when God the Father drew up the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world. So we looked at the covenant, we kind of unfolded that and looked at some of the sort of the qualifications that um, it took for him to be the advocate. And of course, he was the only advocate that was qualified, just like all the other aspects of salvation that Christ uh, was appointed to do. He was the only qualified one in heaven and earth to be the one. So we looked at the covenant. Uh, last week, we continued to look at his qualifications and started dealing with the particulars of the person in the work of Christ and that relating to his advocacy. I'll just run down real quick some of the, the heads of some of the things we talked about. We, we talked about the sinlessness of Christ as God-man mediator, how that he was God in the flesh, the word made flesh as we, as we studied in John 1. We talked about his virgin birth, and then he bypassed the imputed sin of Adam through that virgin birth. We talked about <clears throat> the fact that he was born under the law, and not only that, he had knowledge of the law, and he studied the law, and later on uh, reasoned with the Jews and the synagogues, the Pharisees, the religious people concerning the law. Uh, he kept the law from cradle to grave. He kept the law. He was impeccable, which means he could not have sinned. It was an impossibility. It was something that he could not do as he could not sin. And we, maybe the high point of uh, his life in reference to not sinning was the, um, the temptation. And we see spelled out pretty clearly there that he resisted that temptation. He resisted sin all of his life. He was impeccable. He could not have sinned. And then we looked at him paying the debt of the penalty of sin in a legal way. And we spent a lot of time looking at the financial side of it, the redemptive side of it. And the price, of course, being his blood that paid the debt of the penalty of sin. So we're going to roll on to the next point under the heading of the personal work of Christ and talk about um, satisfaction, which is the word in verse 2 we haven't got to yet in our text. It's propitiation. So we're going to look at his satisfaction in connection with his advocacy. And what we want to see in particular is the fact that 
his satisfaction was sufficient and it was effectual. I look at verse 1 again and we'll roll to verse 2 with it. My little children, these things are right unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're going to talk about propitiation in general, and then we will deal with how that propitiation is used in the second part of that sentence in reference to the extent of who it was for. Now, propitiation, I think we had defined this in our maybe our second message in this series as satisfaction. I usually just mention satisfaction whenever I talk about it. Another word would be appeasement. Christ was the very means of appeasing or satisfying the holy wrath of God, his character, especially in particular his justice, his holy demands that he had in the law. We talked about the law. Anybody under the law, they're under a curse. So there's demands in reference to not keeping that law because of God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness. He has to have a propitiation to go forward in a relationship with God's people. And Christ is that propitiation. He himself being the sacrifice and the propitiation for the sin of God's people. So there's two things we're looking at here when we're talking about propitiation. We're talking about what God demands and then the fulfillment of those demands. And that's really, maybe that's a good model for when you're, Witnessing to people, those two things, when you look at the three aspects of salvation, and this this is the first one, who God is and what he demands. And then you look at man, who man is and how that man can't meet those demands, and who Christ is and how that Christ met those demands. That's a simple model for preaching the gospel to people. And the answer to that would be that we are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ based on the effectual atonement. It's another three-pronged little model that goes along with uh, that model. That'll, let, that'll last you the rest of your life. You can talk about that the rest of your life. You can unfold it and expand it. But propitiation is a satisfaction or an appeasing of God's wrath. So God has his demands according to the law, and they are what? They are absolute perfection all the time, every time. That's what it says in Galatians 3.10 where it talks about those that are under the law are under curse. Because cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. God is too holy to look upon sin and just let it slide. He must have a propitiation, as I said, for the sinner to move forward in a relationship with him. And then... You have the fulfillment of those demands. And that's what we're going to look at here in reference to Christ being the propitiation as connected to and him being an advocate. You could say, I guess, that this is the groundwork laid that enables him to be an advocate when he does this. He's done the work. Then he turns around. We, we have talked about, we'll get to it a little bit later, hopefully, about entitlements. 
before Christ can give anything out, he's got to do the work and issue forth the purchase price and then get his people and give them things. Primarily salvation, of course. But there are all kind of little, a fine array of things, of gifts involved in salvation that he gives. But it has to be purchased. Even faith, repentance, all these, all the gifts of the Spirit are purchased by this activity. And as he purchases it and delivers it to his people through his Spirit and so on, he deals with them as an advocate as they use these gifts that are dealt out to them. So when you talk about salvation, you know, sometimes we talk about it in general, and we kind of talk about it, a lot of people outside of our church, of course, talk about it in a real shallow way. You know, they think salvation is when you come down front and do the prayer and you're saved. And that's, that's a pitiful, shallow, low view of God and his salvation. So this propitiation is that Christ, again, suffered under the curse of the law, having been made a curse, made sin, same thing, synonymous, unto death. And that death and that suffering was unmixed with any mercy from the Father toward him. The Father did not have mercy. This was the time where the Father, he himself, had to be satisfied. And if there was mercy given, the Father couldn't be satisfied. There had to be his full wrath poured out on Christ. No holding back in order for him to get that wrath off of his plate, so to speak. He paid this penalty. The wages of sin is death. And we know that death has a, a lot of different folds to it. It's a legal death. The day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Primarily there, legal condemnation. God declared Adam to be legally condemned in need of justification. What flows from that? is spiritual death or a corruption of our nature. And then, of course, physical death and then eternal death. So there's the fourfold aspect of death. And God's people need to be rescued from that fourfold death. And it is very, of course, a very powerful thing, so much so that it took the God-man to undo it. And there we see part of it is his advocacy. He is our stand-in. He's our lawyer. He's the one that speaks for us. And he speaks for us based on this work that we're talking about of satisfaction. That's the ground or the payment or the backing that he could say he merited. It's It's has some value or worth, in other words. So he suffered under the law. No mercy toward him. He paid this penalty by the merit of his blood, a blood sacrifice, to the point that when he died, and he had to die, he defeated death with his death. So this sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice, once and for all time, because there's no need to repeat it, because it was successful, it was sufficient in and of itself, by itself, and effectual, and he completely satisfied and answered all, completely all, the demands of God's strict law and inflexible justice. God will not flex his justice. He will not do it. He is just in his judgments. He is 
faithful to his own character. He cannot lie. He can't cheat about this thing of salvation. He's not going to shortcut it. He's not going to do it in a crooked way. It's all leveled out perfectly in the balance of the scales of justice. He sets righteousness with a plummet. If you've ever used a plumb bob, the God's law of gravity, is that thing is going to stop swinging. And when it stops swinging, it's dead on where you want it to be and where you're going to do your thing. And that's what God has done with his salvation. He's precise in what he does. The God that cannot lie. So as he makes promises, reach back to what we talked about in the first message. He makes promises in the covenant and there's conditions in the covenant. So the father makes sure these conditions are fulfilled by Christ. None of this is going to be skipped. He fulfills the conditions. So this is done and it meets all the demands of God, this payment and this merit to finish this work. And it was a work of satisfaction or appeasement of God's holy and righteous wrath. So again, it was finished. I think we looked at Isaiah 53. Talk about it pleased the Father to bruise him. The word pleased there has to do with satisfaction. He was satisfied in expelling all his wrath until it was enough. Because it was a measured out wrath to get the job done. There was no more wrath or any less wrath than the wrath that he poured out on him. It was valuable and it was measured and the price up front was agreed to in the covenant. This is the price. And then when Christ knew that the price was completely paid, that's when he said it's finished. It's done. It's complete. And then he bowed his head and he laid down his own life by his own power in the sacrifice, which was part of the qualifications of the sacrifice that he would die. So it was finished enough for God to be satisfied to the point of knowing the results. And we also said that, saw that in uh, Isaiah 53 about he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And it talks about all these things of Christ seeing the effects of his perfect atonement, that it was going to bear fruit to all his people and save all his people. And one of the things that it produced this propitiation, that it produced a reconciliation. And we're going to look at justification next. We've, we've kind of visited it all the way through. And, um, you know, normally I would think that uh, in the order of salvation, uh, justification would be in front of reconciliation. But it doesn't matter. They're all in there. We're not skipping anything. It's There's a lot of overlap in all these things. But Christ's propitiation resulted in reconciliation. And this again is because the demerits, what our sins are demerits, they were placed on Christ to the point that Christ put them away. And now the merit of Christ is put to our account. And we'll look at that in uh, the justification section here. But the point of that is, is when we are reconciled to God, we are, we are not any longer enemies. We are now God's friend. We are able to be the friend of God. This God that when we come into the world, we are so alienated from. But he, Christ brings us to the Father so that we can be in the family of God, be adopted in there. 
and be sons and daughters of God, be joint heirs with Christ, and just be given everything, and be looked at just like Christ is looked at. And all the other things that's recorded in Scripture, all the positive statements about who we are in Christ, we're kings and priests. What's it say in First John, somewhere toward the later chapters, it says, as he is, so are we in this world. If that'll really like soak in, you can you have a hard time getting over that. That's that's serious. We are to the Father in this world. We are just like Christ. I know we're not dead and glorified to where we're without sin. I'm talking about right now. That's the effectiveness, the effectual work of Christ produced that result. That when the Father looks at me, he sees nothing different than his Son. Now, as I walk and breathe, I have that treasure in earthen, my earthen vessel. So we are no longer enemies. We are friends. So there's this little mantra. And I used to teach Whitney when I would talk about uh, three or four. I don't know when she was, how old she was. But we would t- I would give an example of propitiation. Some type of a, a war would take place between her and her sister. And her sister would bring her an ice cream cone, which would be the propitiation, and it would result in reconciliation. And that was a start of bringing in the gospel as a small illustration that comes nowhere near about what we're talking about. But it's an appeasement. And I would always try to drill this into not only her head, but people throughout the years that I had preached to, that every successful Propitiation results in a successful reconciliation. This one here, especially. We know that's the case here. The effectual work of propitiation is able to maintain its definition. Just camp here just one second. Think about, I used this in the debate on the atonement against that Church of Christ preacher back in 2003 or four, whenever it was. When I went over atonement definitions, propitiation was one of them. And I had mentioned that the word means satisfaction. So if you say that Christ was the appeasement or satisfaction to the Father for his people, then if that work is not effectual, you can't even use that word, propitiation. It destroys the word and you just can't use it. Call it something else like, screwed up or failed or something like that. The word propitiation has to be effectual to maintain its definition. Now, having said that, let's roll on to this verse 2, this controversial text here that so many people are uh, afraid of. Some sovereign grace, so-called Calvinistic Reformed people, want to open up the atonement to, to something more than particular with this verse here. There are some, again, that call themselves Sovereign Grace Reformed Calvinists that want to take verses like this and make them hypothetical, universal, and say in some way God loves all people in some way, and Christ died for them in in some way, and God wants to save them in some way. And, you know, they'll pitter-patter around and say, well, it's not a, a complete saving way, and he still smiles on them, and, and he wants this, and 
he, you know, it starts falling apart right from the start. We have to use these terms and they must retain their definitions. Verse 2, 1 John 2, 2. And he, Christ, is the propitiation, the satisfaction or appeasement for our sins. And not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, if we understand the first part of the line before the semicolon there, if we understand that, then we will have no problem with the rest of it. But if we have problem with the rest of it, it simply means we don't understand the first part of it. Now, the first part of it is a foundational, vital gospel principle that he's a propitiation for our sins. To take and pervert the second part is to pervert the first part. As I said, you lose the definition. The work becomes ineffectual. And if the work's ineffectual, that means something else has to be done to make up for the ineffectual work. And that's some type of work in the center. That means it destroys the definition of the gospel, which the gospel is the person and work of Christ. This perverts both his person it shows shame and reproach on his character if he failed here. So it perverts his person and it perverts what his work really accomplished. Very, very easy to see. Before going any further, I want to mention that I had uh, watched a video that I got from somebody on Facebook and I, I reposted it and gave some commentary, but it was uh, Paul Washer. He's in the Gospel Coalition, very popular, famous preacher, very sought-after conference speaker, very emotional, gets people stirred, mainly gets people guilty, makes them feel guilty, but uh, gives a lot of stare-downs when he's preaching. I think most of you have seen him, but the video was after a conference, there was a panel of six or seven preachers up front, and they do this every year at... Uh, these uh, conferences, I think it was called G3. But it's a mix, a lot of times, of different Calvinistic people, some Southern Baptists, and, and the question was about the atonement. Paul Washer was the first one up. And the announcer guy, the questioner, said something about, we know, since we know that the biblical truth of the death of Christ is particular and limited, is there any space in evangelical Christianity for a general or universal atonement? And he puts the microphone to his mouth and it's like a hesitation, pretty long hesitation. And he says um, something like, I think you should have started out with a harder question. Audience laughed. And of course, I would hope anybody here would just put their mouth close to the microphone and say, no, there's no space for a universal general atonement. No. But he went on for a couple minutes about it. He hauled around and um, he, he left space for a general universal atonement. And uh, he scolded people for making a distinction and making a big deal about it. And when he did that, the audience applauded him, and then the questioner looked at these other six preachers and said, do you want to add anything to it? Deafening silence, 
no, no, we can't add anything because we're compromisers. And that's how it fell out. I've got it on my uh, page if anybody wants to look at it in detail. It's, uh, it's sickening, but it's sort of expected to hear that. So the first part of the sentence here, he's propitiation for our sins. We have just explained it. I think we all agree what it means. And again, if we can understand what the first part means, the second part shouldn't be that bad. Not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, contextually, we know that this is John writing this, the same author as the Gospel of John, the same author as the book of Revelation. So he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Same author. The way we know that the Apostle John uses the word world in John 3.16 is not applied universally. And we know this. We know this for a couple reasons. For God to love the world. We know that it doesn't mean all without exception because we know specific people that God said he hated. He hated Esau. Psalm 5.5. He hates all workers of iniquity. There's other verses that talk about God's hate. So we know that the word love cannot be applied universally because of God's hate towards some. Not only that, we know the word world is used about seven different ways throughout the whole scripture, depending on its context. This is one of them. Now, going back in our minds to John 3, for example, he's dealing with Nicodemus, a religious Jew, a Pharisee, who thought they were the only ones that were saved, the only ones in the world that were saved. They always talked about this. They called Gentiles dogs. They segregated themselves one from another. So the idea here, the correction that Christ was giving Nicodemus there in John 3 was it's not, it's not only the Jews. It's not, it's not you guys. As a matter of fact, you know, we, we learned that there's, there's only a remnant of the Jews. According to the election of grace, Paul explained that. So Christ was correcting him and, and, and saying, first of all, you got a PhD. You, know, you can't even understand the weather. You know, he, he got on him about his dullness in just looking at natural physical things. So if you don't know these things, how do you even know spiritual things? So he didn't say, he didn't imply that Nicodemus was one of these whom God loved. He didn't say anything about that. So he used the word world in John 3.16 just like he uses it here. That it's more than Jews. The words sometimes Gentiles used, sometimes nations are used, and sometimes the word heathen is used. At least those three things. There's maybe some more. But these words are sometimes used interchangeably in different places. I don't have to go to a half dozen world verses to show you how that it's different. I think we've seen that before, and we're going to look at that some other time. I will go to one. Let's go to Second Corinthians 5. And we will look at something that's talking about reconciliation, too, at the same time. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. You're familiar with most of these verses. Verse 17. So that if anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, see right away, we see the results of Christ's work. There's one of them right there. Old things are passed away. There's therefore now no condemnation, right? This is talking about a new state 
for the elect. They pass from death unto life. They're justified. And that is unchangeable. And they're put in that state, as we talked about last week, the state of justification and the non-imputation of sin. All things have become new. We're a new creature in Christ. And all things are of God. Talking about his sovereignty, his power, his control. Who has reconciled us. This is talking to the church, believers, the saints at Corinth. It's not talking about everybody just in general out in the city of Corinth. It's talking about believers. He has reconciled us unto himself. How? Through Jesus Christ. Not just as just a person without having done anything, but as this person that is tied to his work, Christ and him crucified. How that he already stated in earlier parts of his letter, I've determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is the verse here why I brought us here. The King James uses the word to wit. It's, it's, the modern version says, whereas God was in Christ. This is talking about during the sacrifice. Reconciling who? The world to himself. Here again is another, another example of the way the word world is used where we can see that it cannot, it cannot mean Universally, the world is not universally reconciled to God because we know there will be people judged and they'll be in hell. They're not reconciled. They're enemies of God. So this word world is limited to those that are reconciled. Reconcile the world unto himself. And it goes further. Whoever these people were that were reconciled. It says not imputing their trespasses to them. Their, them, and world are the same people. That's quite clear. That's quite easy. You don't need to be like a super scholar. You don't, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew. To You don't need Greek. New Testament's Greek. You don't need to know any of that. You don't need a Ph.D., you just interpret scripture in its context. The word world here is the same word world in our text. The propitiation of our sins, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Before I forget, the word whole is put in front of the word world. Now that's, that's used other places, whole world. And you can see sometimes where it's used in other places. It doesn't mean the whole world as the way most people think the whole world without exception. Latter part of verse 19, in putting uh, the word of reconciliation in us, then we are ambassadors on the behalf of Christ. As God exhorting through us, we beseech you on the behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. This is our idea in evangelism, how that we know God, the message of God's gospel is to sinners. You're enemies of God. You need to be reconciled to God through Christ. And how was, what was the ground of all these things that he's talking about? We know verse 21 right here. This was, this was part of this propitiation. For he, 
God the Father, has made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So here again is this work, this work of propitiation that resulted in reconciliation and justification and all these other things. And this is how it was done. This is the ground of it right here. The imputation, and that's the means which was used to legally transfer, to legally reckon, or to charge to the account of, move sins off of God's people onto Christ, laid those sins on him legally. So much so in an effectual way that he owned them. He took them on himself. He owned them and he was liable and accountable for those sins in a legal way. And he was declared to be condemned. And then God the Father, as a result, as far as the terms and conditions of the covenant were concerned, had to and wanted to pour out his wrath on Christ because of that. And then, of course, the result of that, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that is talking about justification. It lines up perfectly with Romans 5 and other texts. So that's where we're kind of going to merge right into, in conclusion, is justification. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time there because we've, we've talked about it throughout. But justification in relation to what we had just talked about, propitiation, as being the ground for him to be able to exercise his advocacy, which is our subject. So first of all, we, we had talked about the demands of God. They had to be met legally, financially. We spent a lot of time last week talking about that. I believe even in the covenant message we talked about that. So in order for God to be, and this is important, to be both a just God and a Savior, this is the part that has to be done. And we have to be careful to know that God was careful to make sure this took place, that the demands were perfectly met, completely met, that wrath was satisfied, law and justice was satisfied in a legal redemptive also way, legal and financial. Christ paid every bit that the Father demanded. There was a price. Christ paid it all. There was certain legal terms that had to be met. He fulfilled them all. He had to do that, again, for the release of those that he was doing it for. So the demands of God were met. And that was done by just a, a general phrase, Christ's righteousness established. And we had already talked about that last week and the week before. Because that's part of the demands of perfect righteousness. Justification is the declaration of a person to be completely righteous based on the merit that made them righteous. So again, that, that mantra that I kind of stated earlier, that we are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ based on the effectual atonement, which includes all these things that we've talked about. 
propitiation and you know expiation and, and all these things. This this having to do with appeasement and payment and legal release because legal demands were met. He took our demerits, we get his merit <clears throat> transferred to our account. A perfect exchange in the wise, eternal counsels of God that glorifies him like no other thing ever. So righteousness is established, and then again, it is imputed for justification. We had also talked about, probably in both messages, this state that we're in. We just alluded to it in um, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that we're in this state of the non-imputation of sin, not imputing their trespasses to them. We asked the question, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's this is what we're talking about here. We looked at uh, Colossians chapter 1. It talks about a sacrifice that through death that he left us in this state that we are unblameable, irreprovable, and there's a third one I can't remember, but it, it all has to do with this state of justification and the non-imputation of sin. We can't be charged with sin anymore. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What's the next line? It's God that justifies Demands of God are met, righteousness established and imputed, non-imputation of sin. So we're getting into the next point. It just kind of flows on the preponderance of evidence and the things that are stacked up that get us so far away from condemnation, it's not funny. The fourth point is we're under grace and not law. As if that needed to be said after all these things, right? It's just like, it's hyper language. It's over the top language. What is it in uh, Romans 5? Something like, um, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And then it talks about what we're just talking about here. How that grace reigns through righteousness. Your personal righteousness, your righteous deeds. No. The righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, it's the, the established and imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're under grace, not law. The law is not a tool anymore that is used to condemn. And as a result of these things, demands met, righteousness established, non-imputation of sin, under grace, not law, we're talking about advocacy here. Christ is our advocate. We're not under law, and we got a lawyer. Is there any way we're going to get in trouble? Sins are gone. We're not just neutral because righteousness is imputed. We're charged positively. Our slate's been clean. Now we're given a full slate of righteousness. And we can't be charged again. We're not under the law. And we have a lawyer. <laughs> it's like too much stuff protecting us all over, all the time. And anybody that says that a person could lose their salvation, or even be in fear of losing their salvation, is just a plumb fool. They don't know the gospel. So all these things result in an entitlement, or entitlements, plural, that we have, and here's the main one. The same law that condemned me in the past now demands my justification. 
This is why we can approach the throne of grace with boldness in the day of need. Because, and in the other verse I quoted earlier, as he is, so are we in this world. We know um, that there's issues with government entitlements. That's why our taxes are so high. Some people, a lot of people, millions of people, think it's okay not to work. And therefore, they believe because of they're in that state, they have this entitlement from the state to receive money. They don't care that it comes from me or you. They're, they think they're entitled to free money. In other words, the state is obligated through taxpayers, obligated. And remember, we talked about mercy, how, for example, mercy is unobligated. If you put obligation on mercy, you, you destroy that definition. But this country is really screwed up with entitlements that are not guaranteed in the original law of the land, which is the Constitution of the United States. It has gradually gone in this direction. But these entitlements that I'm talking about in salvation are completely, totally different. This is something that God, in his covenant, planned out. This is something that God likes. This is a big deal because it's the way we live under grace and that we live by faith and walk in the Spirit is in reference to these entitlements. When we take what he has given us, when we take it freely and gladly and thankfully, this is something that's pleasing to God because we do it by faith. We see that this is paid for. Think of the idea. Let's take this a little bit further in our minds. Something's paid for and you're giving it to somebody and they don't take maybe any of it or some of it. If it's bought and paid for, like I bought this for you. What take it? What are you are you too proud to take it? Or are you frivolous with it where you don't want it or you lose it? You know, that these are ideas that associating with uh, maybe friends and family and coworkers or things, how we interact with people. If you've ever went out of your way to get something for somebody and give it to them, you're thinking they're going to like this, you know, and it's like, you're kidding me. You, you kind of, I see how much you appreciate it. You, you threw it away or you left it somewhere and you didn't even ask about it after you left it somewhere. It's just like, seriously? So imagine when self-righteousness would perhaps rise up, like, for example, in Galatians. Some of those people were converted. And Paul wrote that letter as a warning to, you know, you're starting to go this way. You're on the fence. I'm writing this letter. Here's all the arguments. It's going to undo this mess of this false gospel. And some of those people were converted and they repented by the grace of God. But can you imagine the things that they were thinking in their heads about perhaps dietary laws, special days, or circumcision? Do you think that was pleasing unto God in reference to this, this grace? That was a form of self-righteousness. That was stepping and walking over the work that Christ had done, where God freely provides all these entitlements. They're making themselves self-entitled. It's self-righteousness, self-love, self-improvement. They're ascending to their own throne of me, myself, and I, so that they can step on God to get up in their place where they can say they had a part in it, and it's a competition with the finished work of Christ. And I repeat, the finished work of Christ. 
can you imagine Paul maybe in some private conversations? What didn't you understand about finished? What part didn't you hear about finished? Or you know, they spoke different language than English, but it would be like us saying, what, what part of English don't you understand about complete? What about preeminence? What part, why do you, why are you wrestling for preeminence? Why are you competing for preeminence? It's complete. It's finished. God's satisfied. Righteousness is established. The demands are met. You're in the state where you're not under law. You're under grace. It's unconditional. All the conditions of salvation are laid on Christ. And somebody would come in and just hint at, Peter did it. He hinted at it. He left the one table and went over. He got scared, left the Gentiles, said, you guys, uh, I got to go. This is the rich tradition of, of all these things, the dietary laws, the, the days, the circumcision, Moses, Abraham. I'm going over here. You guys, with your pork and stuff, implied that these people are not complete in Christ and that he wasn't when he was over there. So he had to make it look good in front of these PhDs, the Pharisees, the Jews that came in. He implied it. And he implied that you don't need a servant. You don't need Christ as your servant. I'm self-serving. I take care of myself. I'm independent. I'm not dependent. I'm independent. I'm autonomous. That just drifts back into works, free will. It's just outright rebellion. It's unbelief. That's what it is. So these entitlements are gifts from God that he has pleasure in giving his children. And we are to take advantage of and use Christ in all his offices and revel in all the spiritual blessings in Christ that are given to us. Now I've gone too far in time and I'm not going to do one message on intercession, but that's it. Christ has ascended and is exalted on a throne and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he intercedes for his people. And that is his form of advocacy for them. He prays for them. And what ground does he pray for them and plead for them? On the ground of his person and work, of the work that he's done, which enables them to come to the throne and, and in the time of need, which is every day. If a man sin, he's got an advocate with the Father every day. So he provides all this stuff for free. He's done the work. It's free. And if you're a believer... I exhort you to partake more of it in your mind. It's all, it's all in your mind. This appreciation is in your mind. It is a renewed mind as we read over and over and over again. This, these things are for his people. So we're entitled to them. We don't go to the throne of grace because we've done good this week. We say, ah, you know, I've done pretty good. I haven't sinned that much. I'm going to the throne boldly. No, that's... That's a, that's a, that's a bad idea. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper. We've talked about this before. I'm, I'm, I'm able to boldly take the Lord's Supper because I sin less and less and less. That's self-entitlement. That means God, God owes you something. That's not the case. We're not entitled by anything we are or anything we do. We're entitled for all these things because of what Christ alone did. And now we get it all because of our advocate. Any comments or questions? All right, let's just go ahead and be dismissed.